Alexander and Zevi have not properly been introduced um, yet, and this is their first conversation together. So I've talked to Zevi recently, um, and I had a wonderful conversation with him at Parallax Academy. And uh, of course, I've had hundreds of conversations with Alexander. Um, and uh, so I, I was very happy to put these two guys together. And we, we said that our conversation tonight was going to be kind of a, a conversation between people representing three different religious you know, traditions. Zevi is, uh, you know, I, I don't know, represents, uh, I guess, an Orthodox tradition of Judaism. Oh, he doesn't like the word Orthodox. I, I remember that from our last conversation, but we'll get into that. Alexander is a Zoroastrian, and, and I've, I'm... I, I am an Orthodox Zoroastrian. I, and I'm an Orthodox... Because in Zoroastrianism, the Orthodox version is the liberal one. All the bullshit right. happens later. So the Orthodox one, I totally subscribe to. That's the liberal version. So it's kind of reversed compared to the Abrahamic religions here. I think that's the same with Tantric Buddhism as well, because the old schools... Uh, tend to be a little bit less um, legalistic, so 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 the Orthodox are a little bit wilder as as a tradition in the, in the Tantric Buddhist traditions as well. Anyway, so um, rather than give a formal introduction, why don't I just ask you guys to introduce yourselves? I know uh, uh, Zevi has a fantastic uh, YouTube channel and does a lot of work talking to people from different traditions, um, and uh, in sort of. Is, is a crossover mystical philosophical thinker. And um, Alexander is the author of many books, a fantastic philosopher and uh, all kinds of shit we all know. So I'm not gonna do the formal introductions. Let me just allow allow you guys to just, just talk and introduce uh, yourselves um, in a second. Just, just a little bit of housekeeping. My name is Andrew Sweeney. This is Parallax Academy. We have uh, lots of good things coming up. Please join us. Uh, if you want to come to our group, which we'll be talking about the fourth way in the Gurdjieff tradition tomorrow evening, get in touch with me. It's for members. And um, and check out our calendar. I'll put links below. Uh, lots of stuff going on at Parallax Academy. So without further um, blah, blah, Zevi, please tell us who you are and and. Uh, Tell us, tell us about Seekers of Unity and introduce yourself to our audience again, if you don't mind. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Great to be here in conversation with Alexander. I am a Hasidic Jew. I grew up in the Chabad Lubavitch Hasidic tradition, which is a contemporary form of Jewish mysticism. Um, really only the, the only historical popular version of Jewish mysticism that began in the 18th century, which I consider myself a progenitor and siren of. I take the call and the challenge of the mystics very seriously. The mystics are after the unity of all being, that which grounds all reality and that which sits beneath the apparent, the apparent separation and brokenness in which we live. And I think that if we're to take that seriously, we're to look not only within our own traditions, we're to look at the unity that is not just within, but also between traditions. And that is the work of Seekers of Unity, to find the unity between traditions and, and to approach that from a, from a human perspective, or humans fundamentally, all these labels, we're rabbis, we're priests, we're Zoroastrians, we're Buddhists, we're Taoists, we're humans, we're all humans. And we, and we have human experiences and we can approach the divine, we can approach the absolute, we can approach the transcendent through our through our human vessels. And, and therefore, as humans across all cultures, 
uh, we can we can strive towards something which unites us, something which provides us with a vision of reality, which is instead of one which is based on strife and competition and otherness and hatred and jealousy, we can instead find a vision which is based on kindness, on empathy, on love, on compatibility, on collaboration. And, and that is what Seekers of Unity is about. And that's who I am. And it's, I'm very glad to be here with, with you two fine gentlemen in this work of finding the common, of finding the unifying between us. Thanks. Okay, so I'm Alexander Bard, and I kind of took the initiative to this conversation because I really would love to talk to Zevi and Andrew and I have a constant relationship in, in the sense that we, we call each other soon as we have something coming up that we both believe in. And this was one of those conversations. Um, I'm just about to finish writing a massive book called Process and Event, my sixth book, and probably it's the magnum opus for me and John Sedeckvist. We realized that we're going to have one hell of a party when the book is finally finished in a couple of months' time. It might be out by late May. If nothing else, it's out in August this year. So we're sort of finishing it off. And the, the argument in Process and Event is that Plato was a big mistake in the sense that the only things that have really interest are the process and the event historically, therefore the title. Meaning that we were originally nomadological, we were nomadic people, we lived in nomadic tribes, where the eternal recurrence of the same is the standard answer to everything. The seasons come and go, you live and you die, you know, everything reincarnates itself in a way. And you're tribal. You're deeply tribal when you live in nomadic tribes. So I've lived in New Guinea. I've lived in the Amazonas in Brazil. I've lived with Inuits in Canada. I'm, I'm really an anthropologist. Uh, so I realized that all these different communities have a lot in common. Here I agree totally with Zevi. Human beings are the same. We came out of Africa some 40,000 years ago, and we haven't changed that much. And genetically speaking, at least, we're very, very similar. Also, we are also tribal. I mean, there's a certain size to tribal clans, about 150 people. The tribe's about 1,200. But tribal size is the only thing we can really relate to without having to have a police force and a military protection or something like that. Larger systems than tribe have to be invented and then have to be implemented with huge effort. And looking back at history, and I've always known that I, I would unify East and West, and I would probably unify East and West through digital uh, in my work, I'm, I'm, I'm the first generation of European philosophers who just find it disgraceful to start with the Greeks. That's unthinkable. It's just, it's just, no, you can't start with the Greeks again. No, no, no. India, China are way older cultures than Greece. And most things you, you hear from the Greeks are actually just repetitions of ideas they either got from the Egyptians or the Persians. And um, in this sense, Plato is an Egyptian and, and his opposition is Heraclitus among the Greeks. And Heraclitus clearly is a monist. He believes in the flux. He believes in process. But there's also something unique about Heraclitus that makes him different from the East. And that's, he has a Persian origin, clearly. Heraclitus probably was a Kurd, he would say today. He was a philosopher at the Median court. So he, he introduced to the Greeks, which Plato then opposed and played around with, he introduced the idea of dialectics. And dialectics comes from a monist culture, Mind you, it comes from monist culture. Dialectics is monist. I mean, Hegel is a monist thinker. Everything in the world relates to everything else. Otherwise, you're not going to do dialectics. Otherwise, you're going to do dualism, in which case two or more substances are so separate from one another, they cannot even communicate to one another. That's essential with dualisms. And oh, this is the thing, when I studied Zoroastrianism, I converted it in the early 1990s, I discovered it was completely modest faith. That's why I decided to convert. It had really very little to do with Islam and Christianity. 
rather than everything to do with Hinduism, which he was a reformation of, and everything to do with Buddhism and Taoism. And now, of course, the Zoroastrians are discovering this massively when they're rediscovering their Persian roots. They're also the opposition to the Mullahs in Iran, etc. Zoroastrians are now everywhere coming out of Western Asia. But if it is the origin of the West, I would argue that the big myth started by Lord Byron in the 1820s was that the, the West was built on the Greek-Hebrew axis. And I think it's entirely wrong. The West is built on a Persian-Hebrew axis. Hebrews and Phoenicians on one end, and Persians on the other end, created the philosophy of the West. And here's what's important. What they added to process was the idea of the event. What Zoroaster added, 1700 before Christ, 400 years before Akhenaten, probably some six or 700 years before Moses. What he, what he added to the history of ideas was the only really remarkable idea besides nomadology and the eternal recurrence of the same. This is the idea that something could happen in history that changed history forever in a whole new direction which is the event. That's all there's to it. Those are the only two major ideas and they both came out of the Bronze Age. And what's fascinating is that these two ideas are then the only two ideas that implemented on a larger scale than tribe. If being human is all about being part of a tribe, if we're all archetypes within a tribe, then the question is how do you extend the tribe or the loyalty of the tribe to larger populations? And here are the only two ideas that came out of the West, both of them. The first was the idea of empire, which is older. It's a Persian idea. And out of that idea, and this is the story of Cyrus the Great, the only Messiah in the Jewish faith who was a non-Jew. Out of this idea came the idea that the Jews formed the first nation. And the difference between nation and empire, the only nation and empire, the only two ideas we have, the larger than tribe, and therefore incredibly important for humanity. The problem is these two ideas coming out of the Bronze Age have then disappeared behind the myth that the axial age that came after the Bronze Age was somehow superior. It was a golden age of philosophers and art and everything. And I strongly argue that's wrong. The great ideas come out of the Bronze Age, including Judaism and Zoroastrianism. The problem with the axial age was that abundance and large populations created exactly the problems we're still dealing with today. And those are the problems I want to address here in today's conversation. Dualism fosters two, two, two types. One is the pillar saint. And the other one is the boy pharaoh. And what I mean with these two characters is they're devoid of the Moses and Aaron connection, the devoid of the Zoroaster, Vishtaspa connection, Zoroastrianism, the devoid of the shared split leadership in the phallic. Instead, it's just one guy, a tyrant there. And the tyrant is either a religious demagogue who hates anything that's physical. This is mani manichism. Mastak and Mastakism that come out of the Persian Empire, both of them. And the problems we dealt with after those. It's also the problem inherited in Christianity and Islam that eventually these two religions will have to deal with. That's a pillar thing. The other guy is the boy pharaoh, speaking of Hitler or Stalin, whatever you like. But the boy pharaoh is the guy who does not need a teacher, does not need a priest. He's the chief and becomes the king and becomes the tyrant. And this was addressed already in the third century by Kartir who was the high moment of the of Sassanid Empire. He warned about it when he went after Mani and killed Mani the way the Jews had killed Christ before him and said that if these Gnostic dualists run rampant in the world, they will cause absolute havoc and be disastrous. And this is what I agree with. I agree with the statement. I agree with Carter. I, I, agree with, I agree with the Jews killing Christ. I agree with the idea that at a certain point in time, it's absolutely necessary to stop the Gnostic dualism taking over the world, which is why I'm a strong proponent of monism. 
And I believe that any religion doesn't, that doesn't address modernism and doesn't understand the world is non-dual is a dangerous faith. And the suffering we have suffered in the terms of the history of ideas over the past 3,000 years have all come from a dualist starting point. Okay, maybe, Zevi, you want, I've heard Alexander's theory, you know, somewhat. Maybe you, I, I would like to, really like to get your take on that, on what Alexander just said. I think that we need to temper our ideas with their opposites. And that's part of a dialectical process. And it means that just as dualism has to be tempered, so too does modism has to be tempered. And it's tempered by, by dualism. I think that there has to be a space for plurality within monism. And I'm sure Alexander's intending this, and then I'd be curious to hear how he sees this vision. I think that we, what emerges from Plotinus in the birth of Neoplatonism, as we know it today, is an appreciation that all is in the all, as opposed to a substance monism where everything is just one and indistinguishable from anything else, or as opposed to certain versions of a Gnostic dualism where we have radical separation between light and darkness and good and evil. We have a sense where there is multiplicity and there is diversity and there is Andrew, there is Alexander, there are, and there is Zevian, and we're separate humans with separate ideas. The, the Jewish sages say that just like no two faces are the same, no two minds are the same, and yet we all share the mind of God, and we all create in the image of God. And that's the great paradox. The sense that when the Jews leave Egypt, 600,000 of them, the collective face of God is represented by the people because it is the it is the, it is the totality of multiplicity of them. And I'd be curious to hear from, from Alexander the space for a, a more nuanced monism and a space where... Oh, I don't think it has to be nuanced at all. I, I Here's one of my favorite Jews, Spinoza. And Spinoza sets the record straight. We have to understand the enormous achievement Spinoza makes in opposition to Descartes in the 17th century Europe when he launches monism for the first time in Europe. He was clearly taught by Portuguese Sufis. So here's again, this nobody represents Zoroastrianism and Hebrew and, and Judaism together as solidly as Spinoza does. Whenever you go with Sufism, Sufi monism, the original Sufism, Sufism is not an Islamic, it's just Islamically labeled, but Sufism has Zoroastrian, even Buddhist origins, right? So if you take the Sufi monism and then you add that to Judaism and you see how that pattern comes out, it comes out of Spinoza. Spinoza summarizes it wonderfully. He says that there's just one substance, but it has an infinite amount of attributes. That means you can have as much multiplicity as you like, but you will still have a world just because it happens to be that way where everything affects everything else. If nothing else, it's called gravity, right? So that's, that's a fact that no scientist would argue with this today. We live in even the secularized, the secularized world today lives in a completely modest idea of the world. Dualism became absurd the day a little kid walked up to Descartes and said, okay, so if there's a soul and there's a body and they're separated, don't they need like a third substance then to be able to communicate with one another? And already there you expose dualism for its childishness and its infantility. So I'm not saying the world had to be modest, 
there's no creator God in my philosophy. Zoroastrians don't believe in a creator God. Rather, there's just a world that happens to be monist from everything we know. It's monist. And for us, in any meaningful way, for us as human beings, it is monist. Meaning that we cannot do anything, for example, on this planet today. None of us can go and shit at the toilet even without affecting the entire planet. And we realize that now. So we live in, a, in, in an age where monism is more necessary than ever. But I allow as many attributes as you like. You can have as much multiplicity as you like, just as we agree that the world is modest and has to be understood that way. And here's the radical take on this and why, I don't know, Zevi, you're such a diplomat, but I want to sort of, I want to see, you have to deal with the fact Egyptians introduced eternity, a life after death, and ruined their entire economy and never returned after the Bronze Age because they built so many pyramids, it ruined the Egyptian economy. The Persians never built a single pyramid. There's a reason why. The Persians learned to take the fucking corpses and put them in nature and feed them to the vultures and only memorize the person who was now dead. There's an enormous difference here. And it must be within Judaism. This is what I want to explore with you. There must be this division with Judaism. Judaism is located right between Egypt and Persia. And I think the key to this, where I think you are a Persian Jew in the sense that you're a monist and not a dualist Jew, because at the end of the day, you either believe there's a life after death, in which case you must leave your body and there's something that leaves the body and the soul independent of the body. That is what dualism is. I believe I die when I die. And to learn how to die with grace is, is the most important lesson in life. And confront death as the absolute. For me as a Zoroastrian, that's absolutely fundamental to my belief. What, 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 what would be your take on that if you sorted out the monism term here? Where does Judaism stem? To me, Judaism was originally a monist faith. I don't see single trace about life after death, anything in original Judaism. But there obviously is an influence from Christianity, just like pop Sorastianism was influenced by Islam later, etc. So clearly Islam and Christianity through the dominance have influenced our faiths. We're now trying to find the sort of monist origin of them. But what is your take on Judaism and its relationship to monism and dualism, if we have to find them this way? Sure. So we could spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the historical development of Judaism and the influence of various cultures, and that could be an entire lecture for itself. But I think I'll, I'll cut to the chase by by speaking from my own perspective within within the Hasidic tradition uh, of which I'm born and raised, and which speaks to a eternal truth of Judaism, although it's not the only voice in Judaism, and I want to be clear about that, is that there is no difference between the body and soul is that there are two names for the same thing. And in that, there's a very Spinozistic sense and, and Spinoza's philosophy and Luria's philosophy and the Balshamta's philosophy, uh, the great Kabbalists, the great Hasidic masters. There's, there's a degree, great degree of commonality there that, that mind and extension are two sides of substance. That body and soul, for those who truly know, are not two different things. And and that's that's a truth which is not, I, I wouldn't say is a mainstream truth in contemporary Judaism which again brings us back into the questions into historical questions but but that that is that is a very core truth and a truth which which stands true and and stands orthodox heterodox however you're going to call it i think it's a difficult truth because it's easy to say it's more difficult to to be in that truth to stand in that truth to to realize what that truth means to realize that we are eternal because we are reality itself and therefore we don't die because we continue to live on in the nutrients, in the plants, in the animals, in the waves, in the forest. And, and that, that's, a, that's a difficult one to swallow. There's a deep personalism, which I think is the enemy of that. Not a dualism, perhaps. I think the dualism, perhaps, is secondary to the personalism. 
And, and I think that comes to, to a core Buddhist truth as well. And Andrew here is representing that beautiful tradition amongst us, which, which, which denies that personalism in a very profound way in its notion of anatman. And I think that this notion and the notion of the, of the separate personalism, there, there, is a, there is a divine person, which is us, which is the anochi, which is the I that speaks at Sinai. But it's an integrated personality. And so long as our personality is, is unintegrated, separated from the rest of reality, stands above and beyond in opposition, in competition, as we were saying earlier, in, in fear and hatred, with his, these are illusions and, and where they come from is a great question. Then then we're then we're at, then we're we're not we're not we're not grabbing what it is to be, because being is only one. I would I would I mean it's it's difficult to speak for Judaism as a whole. I can only speak from my perspective, but that's that's how I would answer the question from where I stand. Well, I think individualism was invented in Europe in the 17th century, and it was invented because people started reading books on their own. And the magic of having printed material in your hand and, and reading the book also took root and became Protestantism, which essentially you can talk directly to God, which I think was a mistake in Christianity built from the very beginning. But now you didn't even talk to the saints any longer. You speak directly to God and you would read your own Bible and therefore you were an individual. And of course, eventually we discovered that individuals are not separated from society at all. And of course, the mess of Western culture is this constant, constant struggle between individualism and collectivism, both wrong. Human beings are fundamentally tribal. Where religion responds, we say that what the congregation is the point. So Rastas invented that congregation called the Anjuman. It's called the Sangha in Buddhism. It, 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 it's the synagogue in Judaism. It, it's, it's the Ummah in Islam. It's the, it's the church in Christianity, which is the most beautiful thing of organized religion, is the idea that the tribe is recycled as a religious community. And without that, secular Westerners today are absolutely lost, absolutely lost, and have to return to religion to find that sense of community again. But I think I think that's a good point. I don't want to I don't want to interrupt because you addressed the question to Andrew, and I really want to hear Andrew's take on it as well. Oh yeah, well it's interesting what you're saying, Alexander. It's like almost like you're you're putting forward a theory of collective reincarnation um, rather than individual reincarnation. Uh, my point of view in reincarnation is it's if there's no self, if there's no then there's nothing that reincarnates that we could call a self or a personality. And there's certainly Andrew Sweeney's going to die when, when I die and, and we're all going to die, but there are patterns which repeat themselves. And so that's how I look at, it's very simple, you know, that you, you fall back into the elements and the elemental forms repeat themselves and whatever it is that you're doing karmically in, in this lifetime is will, will continue to, to, uh, you know, repeat itself, just like when you plant something in your garden and it, you know, it dies and then then a similar pattern. So it's patterns that are repeating itself. That's my view of reincarnation, not selves or personalities or any fantasy like that. Um, so, so you just pointed it out, Andrew, you said karma. Okay, most misunderstood term in the Indian philosophy when it comes to Westerners is that they think there's an individual karma. Now, if you do karma yoga, there's no such thing. Karma yoga is also practiced by the Persians. This means that you basically just say that okay, what I do has an effect on the world I live in, okay? What other people do to me around me has an effect on me. That means you go into tribal mode. That's exactly what you're supposed to do is meditations in a group of people from your congregation. And when we do the meditation, the karma yoga, you're basically saying that what we do as a community, for example, will have an effect on our children of the next generation that comes after us, the planet we're living on, that's karma. 
Karma is not your karma, your guilt of a karma, you're taken somewhere after life, you're being judged for your for your for your actions, you're being good or bad girl, a good or bad boy, whatever, and then you're sent off somewhere else. No, that's not what karma is. Karma, because there's no individualism in Indian culture to begin with. Well, it's no, a negative individualism term, right? is a completely Western concept. And, and I, I think Zevi Garisi would be here that even in Judaism, this is really strange. You can have strong people, you can have strong individuals, as I call, you know, because I hate the word individual. You can have a strong individual, you can have strong people with their own character, with a strong sense of self. And, and my God, that's a point. The point is that we are going to die one day. That makes us want to live as selves, as subjectivities. That's absolutely correct. But the point with the spiritual journey is to get out of the narcissistic loop that I am somehow more important than anything else, because that's just the trap. And that's what I call the trap of Western culture. That's the trap of Cartesianism. It goes from Plato to Descartes all the way to Kant. And finally, Spinoza, Hegel, with the help of Spinoza, breaks up with that in Western culture. Finally, we have a revolution with Hegel 200 years ago where we started thinking monistically about the world, dialectically about the world. And Hegel points it out. He says, he calls the subjectivity that has been cherished from Descartes to Kant immensely. Like, now forget about God. The individual is the new God until Hegel comes along and calls the subject the night of the world. I mean, he's incredibly Jewish. It's incredibly Zoroaster. It ties into that. And Hegel then inventing the nation state for the Europeans, obviously built it on Jewish culture. <laughs> the, the funny thing is that Western culture has three major ideas. They're called Christianity, capitalism, and nationalism. And they're all Jewish by origin. Well, I just have one thought before I pass it to, to Zevi. Um, it seems like that the concept of karma and is a bit like the concept of original sin in the west it's weaponized by exoteric religion to make people afraid and and you know and uh and to make them sort of act like good little girls and good little boys but it's not a very deep notion there's a deeper notions of karma you know that you can study and and uh you know that that are that are not that are, that are not your storybook kind of um you know, uh, a reductive view of just causative causative effect because actually karma you mean is action. So it's what you're doing. It's not it's not this this uh, predestination where you're you you have a karma and then it's just going to play itself out. It's what you do all the time. That's the more correct version of of uh, of karma. In my but it view. it even has to be the intention of what you're going to do and nothing else. Nothing else that could be ethically ver verifiable. Yes, exactly. Okay. Seven so thoughts on that. Where are you? Are you are you with us, Evie? Do you have some? Yeah, this, this turns to, to action here. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Do you hear me? Yeah, you're cutting. Okay, yeah. Bit from my from my perspective, I think I think the turn to action is an important one. I think essentially Jewish one here as well, where thought is important and speech is important and those are central, but they culminate in action and we, and we reveal our thought in our action. That's where we show ourselves in our action. By the, by the fruit that shall know that. And, you know, there's a, there's, a great, there's a great story in the Talmud. The Talmud is not often thought of as, as a spiritual text, but I think it's a really spiritual text. Of a sage, a great sage is passing away, one of the heads of the Babylon academies, and he has a child, a son. And the child was 
positioned to have taken his father's role. And he asks his father. His it sounds like somebody's undoing a kitchen or something in the background, taking oh, over sorry. the building. Okay, let me that, just mute, Is that with either one of you guys? Or do we have some ghosts that will join the show? I think Hacken needs to mute himself. Okay, I think I've muted everybody now. Okay, okay. Thank you, thank you. He asks his father, his dying father, the sage, the one of the luminaries of the generation. He says, Father, before you pass, why don't you put in a good word for me amongst your colleagues that they should know that I that I can that I can succeed and I can take over the, the leadership in some way, if not now, in some time in the future. And the father, in his dying moments, tells his child, he says, No, I'm not going to vouch for your character, I'm not going to vouch for your integrity. He tells him, your own actions will bring you close. Your own actions will bring you far. It's in your own hands. It's in your own actions. My words, my words will come and go, but if you're to make yourself a man, you're to do it by your own actions. And I think, I think this point is a relevant one to, to this discussion because we can, we can talk for a long time. We can talk for a long time. But I wonder how we convert this into action. How do we, what does it mean? To, to embody a monistic perspective or a perspective which, which rejects the duality of idealism, or of, of individualism and of communalism, collectivism, and embrace instead of communalism. What is, what is the activity and, and can we model that and can we live that and can we be that? Otherwise, we're a performative contradiction where we're talking monism but we're being something else and that's itself is dualistic and and i don't know if i have an answer to this it's it's a question to myself as it is to my to my esteemed panelists here i can maybe give you a zoroastrian answer to that so zoroastrianism everything is a feedback loop this is a strictly ethical religion without any morality so the way it says is that judaism has the ten commandments we have none of that we have only one simple principle that simple principle is the world operates in a certain way. It's called asha. Same word in, in Sanskrit is arta. The same word in Chinese is dao, imported from Persia. So it's the same term. Now, you can relate to that. So if you, if you live in alignment with how things actually operate in every way possible, I mean, mythologically, logically, pathically, whatever, right? you, you operate in accordance with how the world operates. You start with figuring out how the world operates, meaning it's very, very pro-knowledge and very, very pro-education, which I think it shares with Judaism, which I think is a trade in monism. I think dualism exactly says that that's worthless. Don't do it because you're only supposed to do this and somebody's supposed to do it for you for free or whatever. With mon in monist worldview, it starts with the idea that it's all down on us. God is us and we are God and therefore we have to be divine. That that's a huge, huge requirement of us, which is exactly what these religions are smaller. All three of us have smaller religions. They're not huge world faiths or anything. They require long studies before you can convert. They don't out go out their mission eyes or anything like that. They're not going to win souls and gain points in heaven or anything. They're really like ethical systems and different variations of ethical systems, probably very close to each other too. So the way you do it in Zoroastrianism is that everything is then a feedback loop. Meaning you get up in the morning and you meditate. You basically contemplate. This is the humata. Humata in Avesta means constructive consideration or constructive contemplation. You go into constructive mindset. There's no good or evil. There's just a possibility for you, your mind, your beautiful mind, your master. The name for God in Zoroastrianism is master, which is mind. God is mind, right? Your mind, mm -hmm. divine mind. And the body is the hura, the being. Ahura, master, means being and mind. 
Okay. Very similar to Judaism, I'm sure. So you, you go into that mindset, you do constructive considerations about yourself and the world and people around you and you could support them. You get your specific role in the social system, what you want to do to be constructive, to move the entire system in a good karmic way, to be constructive simply, to do good in the world. And that's called the Mata. The next one, the second one is the Hukta. And Hukta means constructive engagement, like, like you swear an oath constructive speech but it's really it's not speech it's not good speech or anything woke shit like that it's more like no it's constructive commitment like you commit to your brothers and sisters around you say i'm going to do this and you're going to hold me accountable for doing it constructive commitment that's the second part the hukta the hukta the third one is the huvarshta huvarshta is the constructive action itself and here's the point you can teach any kid that you know if you had a good day and you ended up with really good huvashta, and you did your huvashta. It's a lot easier to get up the next day after a good night's sleep and do the next humata. So it's it's just it's just when you get out of the loop and it's all going going downhill, it's going destructive. Instead of going into a better and resentful mindset with sorastis and bounce, no, you go back to where you're at. Forgive yourself for everything. Love yourself unconditionally meaning that it's just an acceptance of who you are. And then you go into a mode where you collaborate with other people in your community to try to go back into the mata again. And the intention is everything. Everything is valued according to intention. So that means that instead of having forgiveness as a sort of Christian principle, whenever you're forgiven, whenever whatever happens, it's Zoroastrianism really is, oh, you failed, try again. Oh, you failed, try again. It goes back to try, try again, which is of course, excellent ethics. And this goes on your entire life. And here's the important point to Rasmussen. If you're lucky enough to live a full, rich life, if you were the lucky one who lived a full, rich life, and you're tired of living because you've done it all, you reach Tarvatat. That's the goal for the single human being. But the community survives you. The community was there before you. The community survives you. What reincarnates itself is, is the community itself. And the name for that is Ameritat which should not be translated as immortality, it should be translated to transcendence. So, so for Zoroastans, this is how we deal with ethics. Fundamentally, I haven't met a single Zoroastan that's a degree. And if you can live with this, try to live according to this, you're an Ashraban. And all we require of the members of the community is they do their best to become an Ashraban. Hmm. No commandments so, required. So perhaps I can I can give the Buddhist spiel a, a little bit since since you've done the, the Zoroastrian one. Um, I would say that... I, that um, Buddhism is the religion, or at least, you know, tantric Buddhism especially is a religion of, of skillful means. In other words, whatever laws you use, whatever codes and laws you have, which you, you know, you, you make commitments to, you know, and, and you, you follow them and you, you, you try to act in them, just like in any religious system, um, are skillful means. They're provisional, right? They're not the ultimate truth. So, so, so there's very many different modes of, of, of activity. And the sutric practitioners practice in one way. You know, they do a lot of meditation and study and they practice ethics and, and compassion and wisdom. So everything is about this, 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 everything is about the, the, the two sides of compassion and wisdom. And um, I would say that I was thinking about, I was thinking about the Hasidic traditions and, and then, and Vajrayana. And I was thinking that, um, I think it was the Balsham Toth that says you're, you're you're not permitted to be sorrowful. You're supposed to be joyful, and uh, and I think that this is really the spirit of tantric 
the small tantric Buddhist communities, which have all sorts of you know laws and and rules and and rituals. You know, apparently there's eighty three thousand different tantric rituals, a lot. Um, but somebody like me who's living in the West, uh, I'm not I'm not wearing jangly ear, earrings or, or, or a white robe or, or long hair like the people in Nepal would be. But, you know, if I didn't live in the West, maybe I'd be wearing a white robe and jangly earphones and have a long beard, you know, and do all that because 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 uh, there are sort of there are sort of rules, you know, like the Torah, but there's there's sort of rules of conduct and rules of activity, which are skillful means to help you become um you know, exemplary in every kind of way, in, in the in, both in the absolute and the relative sense, right? We, we, there's the two truths of Buddhism, which is absolute and relative uh, truth. So, I don't know if that is that that if I'm a- answering the your, your question or all aspects of it because I, I don't remember the, the nuances of it. But Zevi, there is a theme here which I'm seeing, which is which is connecting us, which is beautiful to see this insistence on the necessity to to serve and worship from a place of love and compassion, uh, love for each other, love for self, love for divine happiness, joy, exuberance, felicity. There's a beautiful teaching, uh, which is paradigmatic and representational of the Hasidic mind, which I believe comes from one of the great Hasidic masters, Rabbi Hudalayb Alter, the Gaya Rebbe, who writes that in part of the liturgy of the evening prayer, Ma'ariv in Judaism, we 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 request we pray to God. Remove the Satan, Shaitan. Remove the Satan, the accuser, from before us and from after us. And he asks, what does it mean from before us and from after us? And he says, before us means before we do the sin. We ask God to not tempt us. And we engaging here in the dualistic language to transcend it. And and uh, we 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 say we 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 ask, don't bring us to the to temptation. Right, King David is the character known in Jewish history for asking God to tempt him. And he, and he, if he fails, right. With, with Basheva. So we say, God, don't tempt us. Take away Satan in front of us. We don't, we don't, we're, we're feeble humans. We are, we are fragile mortals. Take away the Satan. But what does it mean to remove the Satan from behind us, from after us? And uh, the guy Rebbe says that when we do the sin, because we will, because we're human and we'll sin, and that's okay. Whatever sin means in various contexts, and, and don't we don't have to think about it in a Christian term. Sin from the Hebrew word chesaron, chet of lack, of absence, of of feeling of of our own internal emptiness. Inevitably, the Satan, whatever that means, <laughs> comes behind us and says, "Look at you! Look what you did! How can you? You rotten, dirty, filthy, selfish piece of..." And then the next time you try to do something good, the Satan says, who, who are you kidding? You're a good person. Look what you did last time. That is the Satan behind us. And we say, God, take away the Satan in front of us. Take away the temptation. And when we do fall, because we will, take away the Satan from behind us. Let us stand up again. The, the sages say the difference between the righteous and the sinful in Judaism is that the sinner falls and stays down. The righteous falls as well, but gets back up. This is so important. Sorry for interrupting. This is so crucial for this conversation, Zavi. Yeah. You just said it there in passing. This is not the Christian concept of sin at all. This is an ethical concept of sin. You have to remember that in Islam and Christianity, sin is a moral concept. You're evil because you commit sin. And why I'm adamant about that, I, I don't, I can, I can be, I can be bad cop, you'll be a good cop if you want to be diplomatic and nice guy. That's fine, but I just want us to be clear about this conversation. Because I come from the same background that Andrew says the Varayana is the mixture of Zoroastrianism and Buddhism. It clearly, clearly is. It has Persian roots. 
Padma Sabana was from Tajikistan. He was not an Indian. And what, it, what is the point with this having an ethical approach rather than a moral point? I think ethic goes with monism. I think, I think morality goes with dualism. There's a heaven and a hell. In the simple story, there is. And the sin is about avoiding heaven, you know, avoiding hell and going to heaven, right? Or to have somebody forgive your sins or something like that. So you have, you have an obligation, you have an eternal loan, which you never can repay, both in Christianity and Islam. It, they're perfect for feudalism, these two religions. They are pop religions invented. Islam coming out of Zoroastrianism, Christianity coming out of Judaism, to spread to the masses for feudal systems. And they will have to be reformed in, in, in the sort of unconditionally modest world we're going into. That's my argument. I think the secularization of Islam will move even more rapidly than the secularization of Christianity. That's my argument. We'll see if I'm right or wrong. But when I go back to Judaism and Zoroastrianism, it's precisely here. This is not sin if you talk to any Westerner. This is not what you're talking about. It's not sin. This is just that you will go into a feedback loop of destructive mindsets once you started going down that path. So you cheated or you were lazy. You didn't do the work. You were arrogant. You were ignorant. You know, you didn't pay respect to those you should have paid respect to. You, you tried to do the quick fix or the shortcut. Those are ethical misdemeanors, but they create a spirit of resentment inside of you. And that spirit of resentment will take you down the road. And we have exactly similar terminology as Rastasism that you described. You have a spenta manu and angra manu. Angra manu is anger comes from Angara, by the way. Angara mind you is just the mindset that spins downwards in a destructive feedback loop. Spenta mind you is the mindset that spins upwards in a constructive feedback loop. And it's wonderful when you're in that mode, you can stay in that mode. Although being human, be reminded, you can fail again. But when you fail, you must not move, move into that mode, that destructive mode, because you yourself, your community is where the divine is. And being part of that community, being human in that community means you can get up on your feet again and go back and try again. So uh, I, I would suggest not even using the word sin here at all. It's, it's the wrong translation. Just like uh, I insist on, there's so many words now in Alvesta and Sanskrit that I refuse to translate to English. They're completely misunderstood. Like karma and dharma before them and harba tatna medita, the terms I'm using here. I insist on writing them discursively so you have to remember that these terms are from another language. You better go back to the roots of that language to try to understand what they mean. I'd say you cannot call this sin. This is not at all yeah. what Judaism is about. Well, missing the mark, it's yeah. an archery term, yeah. right? You know, um, and if you miss the mark, you, you you try to hit it in the next time, right? It's just it's, it's not it doesn't yeah. have that my, my point, heavy my point, accusatory my point, my point. sort of yeah, uh, sort of uh, you know uh, I, I like how uh, Zevi is defining Satan as the accuser. Like this accusatory mode is really what brings people down and and what 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 hurts people and what and uh, I remember that like the, when the Tibetans came to uh, to the West, they were very surprised about how much people hated hated themselves. And uh, and they're really surprised about this notion of original sin that people are bad fundamentally and that we have to become good. Um, so so anyway, that's just some some thoughts about that. I have a question for Alexander here, and uh, and if I didn't have respect for my brother Alexander, I would just agree with everything he's saying. And out of respect, I have to disagree, Alexander, in good Jewish faith and tradition. This the the notion that there is. And I'm, I'm going to straw man what you've been saying here um, so that you can come back to this, whether that's the Christian, whether that's the, the Cartesian. 
seems seems fundamentally wrong to me. We have seen the enemy and he is us, right? The enemy resides within and the, the, the falsity which we have to eradicate is within. And, and I would say that amongst our Christian brethren, amongst our Muslim brethren, amongst our Cartesian philosophical brethren, lies some of the world's greatest geniuses and mystics. And I think many names, whether it's a Teresa of Avila or a Meister Eckhart or Shankara, you know, from, from within the great traditions, and, and it might be easy to separate out the masses and the mystics and therefore to claim the mystics as our own. The, the, the ease of, of separating out a target and of, of pointing a finger elsewhere seems to be accusatory in and of itself. And, and what, I'm, what I'm striving to do in my work, and I'm still young and dumb and trying to figure it out, is, is to find where we can incorporate, where we can bring in, where we can see are we losing you a little bit in Zebby, or is that just me the dualist in position of the christian in position and, and where is the the truth with it's the in- are you there Zebby? are you there sir yeah we lost you we've, we've got a bad connection uh, uh Zebby, a little bit um hmm I think I'm getting his question though, but Internet I'm not having back on. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we lost you for a bit there. Okay. Uh, uh, but my point, we... my point is this: my point is not here to be diplomatic. My point is to be truthful, and this is something I've addressed. I mean, I talk to Christians all the time. You have to, you have to realize that I live in Sweden at the moment. Christianity is dead. It's less than two percent of the entire population take the religion seriously in any way whatsoever. Ninety-eight percent just ignore it completely. It's dead. It's over, right? So we're not talking about like they're like we should talk to each other on a par with each other. And I think the problem is that Christianity and Islam had a problem surviving, moving from rural to urban, and now moving from urban to digital. They're in for a big, you know, punch in the face. And I think what Nietzsche portrayed with the death of God, which was the death of the Protestant God, Protestant Christianity, which he correctly foresaw, we're living in the age of the last man now in Western culture. Uh, and the same thing is going to happen with Islam even more rapidly. And I am talking to people, Muslims, who would want to reform Islam. And they also know Sufism has shared origin. So there can be dialogue in between Zoroastrianism and Islam. It can be very fruitful. But you have to remember that they have certainly been modest who've tried, like in Catholicism, Thomas Aquinas, it's really popular these days because he was actually 400 years before Spinoza. He claimed the world must be modest and tried to argue for it. Of course, he was a heretic at the time. He's now a hero among many Catholic theologians who realize that, God, we got to deal with this. But I'm also saying that there's very little left of Christianity and Islam once we remove the afterlife. I know people want to disagree with me and, you know, many people want to say that well, there was more to Christianity or Islam like that. I said, not fundamentally, because if you go back to the religion of the people who claim Christ, Muhammad, Paul, Augustine, whatever, Christianity is formed by a certain group of guys, right? So was Islam as well. And, and the problem these two religions are facing is that the afterlife and the morality and, and you know, the lies they've been telling people for 2000 years or something are something they have to address. And this is why my argument is that before you can become phallic, you got to have a root of the phallus to speak Freud here. The root of the phallus happens to be Judaism when it comes to Christianity. Christianity has to make a return to Judaism. That's my argument. Islam has to make a return to Zoroastrianism. And here's the catch. It's called anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is not racism. 
And anti-Semitism is the avoidance of the really difficult question of why the Jews killed Christ. I dare mm. answer that question. And I have several Jewish converts, for example, Linda Rachel Anderson, the Danish philosopher who converted to Judaism about the same time that I converted Zoroastrianism, interestingly enough. And I asked Lena once, when did you convert? When did you decide to convert? I woke up one morning and realized it was probably a really good idea to kill the Christ figure. I said, Portal. That's how I become a Jew. Because I'm a post-Christian in the sense that I have to go back to the Jewish roots and find something there. And I said, you're probably going to discover monism. You're probably going to discover ethics. You're probably going to discover a religion that requires quite a lot of you before you can convert to it. Because that's what I did when I returned to Zoroastrianism, which was my jump. I, I took the jump from paganism because Christianity is dead in Europe. And I went pagan. And I went from pagan back to reformed paganism, which is Zoroastrianism, and discovered similarities. And I think this is just a theological issue. It's not personal, for God's sake. You know, nobody owns Christianity, nobody owns Zoroastrian, nobody owns Judaism. We are people, we're now in a discussion, but if the discussion is what is going to happen to Western culture, what's happening to the Middle East, what's happening to Europe, what's happening to America, what is happening to Western culture while India and China are dealing with their shit and dealing with Eastern culture, then what are we going to do with the history we have? Well, the history obviously has to be rewritten because the history we have today is incorrect. It's highly incorrect. And by starting with the Persian Hebrew axis, which is my proposal philosophically and theologically speaking, I think we stand a much better chance of arriving at something that's meaningful. I mean, Andrew here, Varyana Buddhist, deeply interested in, in Kabbalah, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like he's a Christian, is it? Well, I'm also in love with Pseudo Dionysus and Meister Eckhart and, and a whole bunch of Christian mystics. Yeah, so, but you're not a Christian. So I would, I would object to, to that. Come on, I'm not, not a Christian. Christian. No. No, I, I, can, I can take a lot of guys and a lot of women, fantastic role models, saints, whatever, from all the different spiritual traditions. They fought as much as they could. And Thomas Aquinas, 400 years before Spinoza, remarkable guy. I always tell people to read Thomas Aquinas before they start studying Catholicism. Yeah. But the discussions well, we're having now, we're going into a global age, a culture being confronted one another, is that we also have to confront each other with actually what we've claimed. What do we well, we're talking claim? about, if we're talking about the mystical traditions, right? And 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 I think that's what Zevi's interest is, and I think that's what mine is, rather than like the more banal forms of Islam, Christianity, or even Judaism or or, or Buddhism, right? We're really interested in the deep stuff. Uh, we can find it in in all the traditions. That's you know that's that's. I, I, no, I, I don't think I you think can so. find it equally in all the traditions. I think you're scared of doing conflicts here. And no, I'm just, I, I, I just I'm I, I, I am, I am I'm conflicting with you. I disagree with you. That's, I'm, that's, on the, I'm, I'm not afraid of, of I disagreeing with you because I'm disagreeing with you, right? But anyway, let's 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 uh, let's let's hear from from Zevi a little bit. <laughs> No, disagreement is wonderful. We should we should be very gladly disagree. We should be very happy. We should we should cheers yeah. to disagree. Cheers. cheers exactly. <laughs> I think like this. I think I think that um we have to break down our we have to jazz it. We have to break down our categories where we get we get east and west and this and that and Christians restaurant like. We're, we're, we're losing you again. Zevi, can you hear us? Hey, hey, Zevi. That, that we you, have to get beyond. Yeah, I think we have to, I hear you. We're losing you uh, uh, quite a bit. So so it's cutting out quite radically. I don't know. Do you want to try to 
um, come in and out and get a better connection or? or... For all the uh, technological advancement of this country, the Wi-Fi isn't so fast. What can I say? <laughs> That's better though. Okay. You're on again. You're, you're on again. Give it another yeah. try. I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, I'll say my piece one more time, I think. We, um, I think sometimes we put ourselves in small boxes, right? We, we identify as, as Jewish, as Christian, as, as, uh, as East, as West, as national. I think that we have to step into the mind of the mystic and the mind of the, the mystical scientist, the mind of the cosmic, where, where, you know, it's Rumi, the great mystic, who says that in, in this space, I'm neither Juno Muslim nor Christian. It's, it's the, this is the, the altar, which is also the, the table for reading the, the Torah and the Quran and the Gospels. The sense that we are just a conglomerate of cells with huge, huge voids of, of nuclei circling around, you know, spinning around and creating this, this illusion of corporeality. And, and, we're and, and we're on this tiny, tiny rock spinning around in vast, vast emptinesses of space. The fact that we can speak and communicate and cohere and have self-conception, this is all just tremendous miraculous. And I think that we have to, we have to break our resolutions. We have to break our scales. We have to zoom deep into what it means to be a human with blood and with bones and, and that, that can return to the earth and, and nurture. We have to zoom way out into the cosmic dust until, you know, the pillars of creation where, where all of this, all of this is just negligible. It is, it is like, it is like zero, zero, zero is nothing at all. And, and I think that from that cosmic stance, from the infinitesimal and from the infinite, we can we can reemerge with a new picture, and and we can we can get beyond these tiny 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 labels that we've created around ourselves, and we can begin to identify the patterns of what it means to be human in this brief moment that we are, what it means to to conceptualize a way of being, which is which is which is which is beautiful, right? What is it? It is the great poet Keats. Yeah, but listen, seven, seven. This is nice talk, okay. Let me address a serious question here. Tyranny. Is tyranny a good thing or a bad thing? No good. Good. We agree. Bad. Okay. <laughs> How do you avoid tyranny? You can't do babble like this to avoid tyranny. You have to seriously consider how you build a social construction larger than tribe to have people communicate with one another and trade with one another and live together in peace. Now, if I would say anything that's universal for priesthood is to try to create peace between peoples and keep the peace for as long as possible to avoid warfare. Right. Just like on the other level, I would say the job of the priestess is to try to avoid the lynch mob, right? So how do you how do you create a system where you try to avoid turning? Now, this is fundamental to understanding the difference between monism and dualism. If you just said to me, tyranny is bad, tyranny comes out of dualism. That's where it comes from, because the irony is that if you realize that the world is one and everything is connected with everything else, the first you realize that the leadership has to be divided. Because we are different expressions of the one, meaning leadership has to be divided. That's how important this discussion is on monism versus dualism. And for me, at least, I'm a philosopher. You, you might not be interested in philosophy. That's okay. But if you're interested in philosophy, this question is absolutely fundamental. For example, uh, of the three major imperial systems in the world today that are all breaking down at the moment, Russia, China, and America, I would strongly suggest America will survive the other two for the simple reason that the American constitution is fantastic in that it implements the splitting of power from the very beginning. 
This is deeply Jewish, by the way. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the three siblings leading the Exodus, are reflected in the U.S. Constitution through the president, the Congress, and the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is actually very feminine. It's an old matriarch who says, I hold you responsible for what you promised, and if you don't deliver to me, then fuck you, right? And the way that the executive power and, 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 and the legal representation, the legal power, are the other two aspects of shared power. This idea comes from Zoroastrianism. It strongly influenced the rewriting of Judaism when the Torah and, and of course, the Talmud were written in Babylon. And of course, they mutually affected one another. We all know that the Persians you know, sponsored the building of the second temple in Jerusalem. And why this is important to me and to reconstruct this history, before we go into the mysticism, is that we live in a real world out that there's real world problems. And we, ha we, have a, we have a fairly long history now, some four or 5,000 years we can learn from. And we know that every time a little boy steps up to the role of being the tyrant, we have major problems. When women accuse us of running a patriarchy that they're tired of, we should respond and say, patriarchy in itself is a fantastic thing. When patriarchy goes wrong, however, it's hell on earth. It's a Hitler, it's a Stalin, or whatever you want to call it. And I'm interested in understanding why dualism always is the starting point for the mass murders in history. Why it starts there. Why is it the guy like Mani who hates his body and is so full of himself and his soul but hates his body and spreads like wildfire in the third century through Manichism? Why did that become a massive problem? Why was Mastak the hero of Stalin? Why did Stalin love Mastak? Mastak said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spread out all the wealth of the society equally to everybody, even if I have to do it with tyrannical methods, right? These are the problems of civilization we have to be confronted with. And if we escape them with some nice babble talk, we're not really spiritual at all. We're just escaping the real issues, which I think are priestly for the three of us, priestly issues. This is why I wanted to bring up the monism dualism. We can then go off and do fantastic things. And thank God, our three religions do not have problems with drugs. <laughs> I would love to do psychedelics with you and do the whole Mao in Peru or Iran and fly off into other spaces and see the world and come back and loving life and loving you as my brothers. I would love to do that, Sebi. It's not that I'm against it, but why I'm bringing up the monism dualism discussion is that I strongly believe from the Axel Age forward, the problem with dualism, starting with Naughton's misrule of Egypt, has been deeply problematic. And that's why I want to address philosophically. And I, I want to address that before AI takes over the world, we have to address the issue. What does it mean to avoid AI becoming the next tyrant? The philosophical issue here, though, Andrew, is that, sorry, uh, Alexander, is is that if we're going to create a dualism between monism and dualism, then we're indulging in a dualism. No, 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 so. no, no, no. That's not a dualism. That's a duality. There's no dualism between them, the duality between them. Duality and dualism, very different things. Hmm. So you're okay with, with the duality? The duality, absolutely. Oh, I'm, I'm okay with multiplicity. You can have as much multiplicity as you like. Duality too. But dualism is fundamentally different substances in your consolable one another. What is, what is, what is a non-dualism then? Non-dualism means, for example, that when your body dies, your soul dies. So your body, your soul, they intertwine one another. They cannot exist from, separately from, from, from one another. From a body soul standpoint, but from I think I think there's a philosophical articulation of of non-dualism, which sees that even between between monism and dualism, between between monality and duality itself is a that they don't have to be in contradiction with one another, or that the term of contradiction itself is not one which which is 
of concern anymore. And this is this is where logic and language begin to stretch loose. Okay, okay, okay. If you believe you're going to live somewhere else when you die, and I believe that I'm going to die when I die, my subjectivity is gone. That's a radically different worldview. They're inconcilable with one another. You cannot sit here and pretend. You can live like two guys and not saying that these are two inconcilable differences. That's ridiculous. So I, I think I think I think we are building our communities these days of people that actually share these habits. And I'll tell you one thing: I will not build a community of people who do not share my conviction of what the birth is of a new child to our community, or or for but, example, but Alexander, how we celebrate I, how we celebrate a funeral, for example, if somebody dies. I mean, Alexander, you're, that, yeah. you're embracing a dualism then between between dying and dying here and dying now, and 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 the opposite, which is to live elsewhere. That's a that's a dualism which you're proposing. No, I'm saying you die when you die. No, but Period. but you're you're opposing that with with an with an oppositional view, which is that of of you die and you go live in a in a hereafter. Yeah. What I'm saying is that that a true non-dualism, and this is not necessarily monism, but a mon- but a non-dualism would find would find ways that may not be logical because logic itself is dualistic to say that that the conception of of dying and being dead and and returning to the earth and that's it and a death of being in an afterlife um are not mutually uh in, irreconcilable of to course they them, are of course they them, are. to call them mutually irreconcilable itself is a dualistic stance there's an end to your subjectivity the end of your subjectivity is your death now learn to live with that your subjectivity is gone but 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 if we can reconcile, if we can reconcile a position, we can't. This is your problem, Zevi. This is the problem. You're well, too much a diplomat. Right. You're not reconcile opposites. You're compromising. You're compromising on truth to, to re- have no, a no, sort no, of messianic no. idea of being being no, no. a savior, right? You see to reconcile mean? opposites is the coincidental oppositorum. That is the dialectic. That is the mystical. That is the that is the beyond Aristotelian logic. That is that is the striving that we're moving to. No, there's nothing there. There is nothing there. And if you're going down that path, that's fake mysticism. Sorry. Nothing, nothing is very nothing is very pregnant. Nothing, nothing is very pregnant. I, I think I think that there is a that there is that there is some sort of there's no thing there. <laughs> right. The, there, there, is some sort of, there is some sort of commitment to a logic which itself is dualistic in your thinking, Alexander, from what I'm no, 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 no. I'm a narratologist. You haven't read my books, apparently. So if you do narratology properly, you talk about the logos and the path of the mythos. And I think you're think, mixing them up right now just because it sounds better. Mythos is one thing. You can do anything in the mythos. You could talk metaphorically about somebody being somewhere else when they died or whatever. I'm not going to be offended by that at all. I mean, it's probably just reconciling because it's so hard to fathom that somebody just died that you loved, right? But logos is actually how things then do operate. The zeros and the ones of reality. The pathos then how you feel towards that. Horses as well are pathical categories. I even think that physics should be split in two between physics and subphysics. That's the only way to make sense of physics. And I, I know physics by heart, right? I'm a mathematician originally. But that, that, that would help philosophically as well. But I think you're mixing up the logos and the mythos and the pathos. And you're so damn committed to finding a story uniting people, which is the mythos, that you're mistaking the mythos for a logos, which I think I will completely underrate, philosophically speaking, saying I think it's childish and naive. Now, so Alexander, what is yeah. your view of mysticism? What is mysticism to you? Because I don't get it still after talking to you for so long. I, I don't like I, 
What do you I think I did during my 60 ayahuasca trips in Peru? Come on. No, yeah, well, that's just your experience, but but the view like that the Zevi is 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 putting forward non-duality is, is kind of textbook mysticism, right? No, no, I think he's, mis he's mistaken. Right? He's mistaking a mythical non-duality for being a logical non-duality. They're totally different things. I would say the different stories, different types of narratives. Narratology is basically your help to understand where philosophy belongs and the impossibility of philosophy. Narratology is built on Hegel. And the, the truth, for example, truth, there are only truths. In the sense that truth either has to be spoken as a logos or a pathos or a mythos, and they're inconsolable with one another. That's why that that's why I, I think Zevi would be a fantastic poet. But if he's gonna be a serious philosopher, that's an entirely different game. And poets often unify people. I would love to put Zevi on the stairs in front of the people and say that you love each other, you don't, just don't know it yet. Or, or, or you think you have one God there, one God there. Actually, they're two brothers and they have a shared father, whatever. That's what priests have always done. I see Zevi doing that beautifully. And I think Zevi's job's that. When it comes to the discussion we're having here, though, which is a philosophical discussion, that was the whole point in us meeting tonight, was that modernism dualism is a much more serious issue than maybe you guys have considered. And you will sort of wipe it over and say, but it doesn't really matter. I think it does matter. And since Christian and Islamic theologians today are dying to have these discussions with me, they realize they have a problem here because they put their game, they put the gamble onto dualism heavily some 2,000 and 1,400 years ago. And the problem is that their entire history is built on that. They've had the Thomas Aquinas is out there who tried to protest against the dualist position and, and tried to introduce monism. And we had Spinoza, who was almost crucified in Europe, tried to do it both with Jews and Christians here and basically bring back Judaism to its roots. I think Judaism originally is Spinozist. That's my point. But we have to address this issue. And since Judaism is harassed in smaller religions with educated elites, obviously, have confronted this issue much earlier, not compromised on these truths, they are fantastic sources to go to. Now, Zevi doesn't have to agree with me at all. I think Christians need to go to Zevi and go to the monist roots of Judaism to find the roots that are monist that could then come back with the Christianity that skips the damned afterlife and looks at the world differently. Rene Shirada, these guys are trying to do it intensely. They try to avoid the afterlife, like if Christianity was something about something else all along, except it wasn't. So it's a long, long journey to do. Reformation is what is required. And I think the same thing goes for Islam because Islam is going to fall apart over the next 40 to 50 years. Because all my young Muslim friends today, they don't believe in Islam, neither Sunni or Shia. They find it ridiculously infantile and childish and go look for something else. We're converting Kurds and Persians and the masses right now, Zoroastrianism, because just like some Christians go for Judaism or go for Buddhism, it's a good choice. They try to go back and find a modest conviction that didn't cheaply sell dualism to people in the masses, and including celebrating these tyrants. Okay, let's hear from Zevi. Come on. Let's, Alexander, I, I, Alexander. I need a good, good, nice, long um, rhetoric. Uh, no, it doesn't have to be long. I have a short question, and I, I appreciate, I appreciate, I appreciate your the the kind words and the and I, I aspire, I aspire to poeticism, and that's very kind of you. I think, I think that one or zero, that dichotomy is a very old one, and and there's there's a there's a real irony here because you're a prophet of monism, as you've been as as you're saying, and it's and it's beautiful to hear, and yet you're so staunchly committed to this one or zero, and we no longer live in that world. We live in a world of the quantum. 
where where we're super positioned, where it's one and zero and both in oh, neither. Oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. wait. Quantum and mechanics is more not, logos than anything. Quantum mechanics is right, more... And this is no poetry. This is philosophy. It, it, which it's definitely zeros and ones, more than you think. Absolutely zeros and ones. The fact that there's a continuity in zero and one, we always knew because the circle was not a square. That's just fundamental to mathematics. But don't use quantum mechanics as an argument against the logos. No, logos is more with us than ever. And computers and everything you've got around us are operating according to logos. And we have to relate to them anyway. No, we do we not kill logos. <laughs> I have some guys who go for the logos, especially autistic computer scientists who want to be philosophers, and they're going to go for logos, but like, no, you've got the pathos and the mythos, and you've got three different ways of approaching the world, and they're irreconcilable one another. That's Hegel's point. Mm. And I firmly believe that's the case in narratology. You can't kill any one of the three. Truth is in between the three, therefore it cannot be defined. I think that, if anything, is Hegelian mysticism. There is no one truth because there's no one truth we can say. We cannot perform one truth. We cannot declare one truth because truth is split into at least three different categories as soon as you start thinking truth. We ourselves are that. Man is, man is torn between logos and pathos. Woman is unified through the mythos. When you penetrate a woman during a sexual intercourse, you want to go for her wholeness. The problem for woman, though, in her wholeness is that she's fascinated with man and split between logos and pathos because otherwise she cannot separate fact from fiction. It, it's just perfect to her sexual attraction. Irreconcilable again. Sexual attraction fundamentally, again, Freud, not the Jew. Irreconcilable in the sense that you cannot get out of the deadlock, and that's exactly why it works. I would say that if anything, and Hegel was a mistake, as anything, mysticism is, is trying to swim in between these irreconcilable truths, knowing that you have to laugh at every attempt at defining them as just one truth. Meaning Hegel is correct in that the absolute is to arrive at the narratology and say that truth is irreconcilable, and that is truth. That is the only truth that is accessible to us, if there's one truth. It can only be on the meta level. And I would say, I would celebrate your poetic instinct and I would celebrate your poetic capacity and, and, and talent. I'd just be careful not to throw your weight being a mythos talent onto the logos or paths, degrade them to celebrate the mythos at the expense of the other two. I think that's making exactly the little mistake we do when we become little tyrants. We think that our own personality, our own archetype is superior to the other two categories. And I think that's where I always try to avoid. I say, no, 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 there's pathos, there's logos and mythos. Swim in between the three. But how do you, Alexander, how do you, how do you, how do you celebrate the monos? the hen, the two hen, while, while being so deeply committed to a dualistic oppositional logos, why not, why not, why not see a way to arrive at a synthesis that goes beyond that dualism? No, because there's no synthesis between the constructive and the destructive mindset. There's no neutral there. The destructive mindset really is destructive. Destruction is beautiful. Destructive mindset. I didn't say destruction wasn't beautiful, but it, because if you do destruction well, it's creative, right? I said destructive mindset. This is the resentful mind that envies you for what you have and tries to kill you and put your knife in your back. That's human. There has to be an opposition to that. Otherwise, your religion is just blah, blah, new age. There has to be clear, ethical spine 
to what you're doing. Otherwise, you're not a mystic. You're just another one of these guys riding around, jumping from one commercial offer to the next and doing trips and kicks. And you're a kick seeker. You're not a mystic. No, I would say I'll go back to that. You have to have an ethical spine. And that ethical spine is your own damn attempt every day, inspiring others as well to try to stay with a constructive mindset. Why would you otherwise get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee and try to do good in the world? And I mean, do good. I, I hate good and bad. I hate good and evil. But I undeniably think that there's a constructive mindset which is accessible to us if we contemplate on what we do before we do it. You cannot build a tribe that stays together and becomes successful unless you have that mindset. And I always emphasize the two most successful minorities in the world are the Parsis of India and the Jews of Israel. Undeniably incredibly successful cultures. Maybe that has something to do with their religions, meaning that they, they have enormous amounts of debates within the religion, but they also know how to unify around the religion when they see an outside enemy. Those are the greatest communities humanity ever built. My love for the Parsis of India, and I converted their religion, and for the Jews of Israel starts here, because I then found out that my love of these two cultures is precisely my love of the West and Western culture. And these are the two enormous sources Western culture must go to today to rediscover the Persian Hebrew axis and there find an ethical spine, not a moral spine, and not morality, an ethical spine. And the ethical spine is very simple. You can teach it to the kids. It's just, you get up in the morning, and you do your best kid. And if you need help, ask for it. We're a community here. Now, that is, there's an opposition here. There's no unity between the constructive and destructive mindset. There's a duality. It's very real. I can go lazy and I can misuse my, my talent and I can, I can be abusive towards other people just because I'm lazy and I do the shortcuts and the quick fixes of life. And I can blame it on my mother or father, whatever I want to do. I can stay in that place. I can stay up. I can become a kick seeker, drink alcohol every day and just fuck the world and use other people's money. You know, or, or, I, or I, I can dwell on my trauma so much that I enjoy them. That whatever went bad for me in my life, I enjoy it so much. Freud again. I just, I want to stay in the trauma and go from one new age guru to the next with my traumas, right? Now, those are the resentful souls out there. And they're real and society's full of them and I'm opposed to it. And what I do in my work, working you know, as a psychoanalyst with psychiatry and psychoanalysis is that I try to help people to get to that point, but also tell them that, listen, here is the diagnosis. Here's your medication. It will make your life wonderful or at least a lot better. Now, if you don't take the medication for the diagnosis, then fuck you. Cause I've got other people waiting in the queue, waiting to come in here and that will help them. That is me having an ethical spine telling people, if you don't want to be constructive, then I don't want to be with you because other people are waiting in the queue, dying to learn how to be constructive and to be constructive with me. And then I will go with them to build a community of people that have damn set to have a constructive mindset. It's definitely necessary to have a community to cultivate a constructive mindset for sure. Definitely yeah, I'm not going to name any names. We have cultures out there in the world today where people beat the shit out of their kids so badly and men are absent and women are sitting alone and grandmother yelling at her teenage sons and they're all going into criminal gangs or whatever. I mean, as a Jew and me as a Zoroastrian, we are in such a luxurious position that we live in cultures that thrive with parents that love us and show us respect. 
It's taken thousands of years to create these cultures, but they're there now. Instead of having saints, we should see cultures that work as role models for other cultures to get inspiration from, to create their own culture that works. And I would say this, this boiling it down to this one thing of the constructive mindset versus destructive mindset is not a duality to be reconciled. That's a definite duality. Zevi, yeah. yeah. jump in here. Yes, no, it's 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 wonderful. It's 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 fascinating to be in conversation here. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking of Jewish models and texts of how we formulate our thinking around these as very core principle, which rides at the core of Jewish and Abrahamic biblical thinking that there's an obligation to imitate God, to walk in the path of God, and God is a creator. God is a creator, and we're obliged to be creators. We create our realities, and God speaks the world into existence in Judaism, in the Bible, and, and we speak our realities into existence. We talk our realities, we speak them into existence, and those are creative actions, and we have the power as creators. According to Jewish tradition, when we make, when we sanctify the Shabbat, the day when God rests after creating the world, when we say those words with God, we are co-creating the world. But God also destroys the world. According to the Midrash, according to the Kabbalists, God destroys the world many, many, many times before anything can happen. And, and I appreciate the distinction, Alexander, between destruction and destructive. So it's, it's, it's a valid distinction. We see, we see that we see destruction, and, and perhaps it's, it's worth pointing out here the difference. And, and when God creates the world in Genesis, God destroys many generations until He finds Abraham, and He begins He, he begins His His plan again with Him tries again and again and again, modeling for us, you know, the righteous who tries again and again and again. I don't know. I, I think, I think, I think I have a lot to learn. I think, I think that I, we're, we're, we're grappling here at great mysteries and we're trying to model ourselves, as you say, Alexander, on great, on great cultures, on great faiths, on great, on great saints, on great practices, and trying to create um, cycles and communities which can, which can embolden a, a place where we can prosper and live with kindness and happiness and humility. These are these are these are these are like the real great questions, and it's and it's incredible to be in conversation with them. I'm 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 caught I'm caught I'm caught kind of in surprise by by the the deep commitment to to dualism within your monism, and, and I think sometimes, and and this may things this may be have to something we have to, but I think that when we commit ourselves so firmly to an abstract, um, such as monism, even it creates in itself oppositionalism, um, and and I think that we have to step away perhaps from our labels and constructs, and and we have to, you know, there's there's a great there's a, Judaism has many great great dualities. There's a, one of the greatest is the duality between the of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And the difference is that the tree of knowledge is knowledge of good and evil, right? There's a, there's a duality there. And that's and that's the beginning of sin. And this is, you know, a great, great theme. But then there's the tree of life. Life, what life does I mean good and evil? The the is the antler uh the good because he was torn apart by is a lion bad because he tore apart the antler? Like, and there's a sense where where in life in the living, in the tree of life, in the branches, in the roots, in the mycelium, and the there, where there is no there is no space for for even a concept such as monism. And I think that perhaps our own commitment to these concepts, just flagging this as, as a perhaps, may may open up cracks that undermine our own intentions. You know what tree of life is called mm -hmm. in Zoroastrianism? Ahura. 
Do you know what tree of knowledge is called in Zoroastrianism? Master. Master. Same origin. It's it's uh it is the division. Why it's important to split God. And I think Judaism did it historically, if I'm correct here, with 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 the, the separation of the of the uh, of the, Elo, the there's Elohim, Elo, Elohim and Yahweh. Yeah. No, God is a pluralist, right? And, yeah. Yeah. This is why they're so related. The split here has a point, because it has a point that leadership must be split. So what you do, for example, a bunch of men in a tribe, you have two things to do. You have to do hunting and warfare, and and they have to be split to begin with. To hunt something, kill animals and get fed, or kill other human beings, hopefully at least from another tribe. Warfare are very different things. But to teach guys to be different between warrior and hunter, the best thing you can do is to put leaders up there and say, the two leaders to begin with are different. Why don't we take the smartest guy in the tribe who worked the hardest to get knowledge and call him a priest? I want to take the other guy who's the strongest, willing to die for the good cause, willing to die for the tribe and carry the flag in battle. What we call them the chief. The separation of chief and priest is fundamentally primordial. And then you do the hunter-warrior separation afterwards. And then the third separation is man and woman, which is the reward system, the sexual act. So if you figure the first two out, the reward system is then sexuality and the sexual ritual. Now, if that's fundamental to religion, it explains why Zoroaster was adamant that ahura being and master mind are two expressions of one of the same substance. He didn't care about the one. This whole talk about the one modesty really comes later with the Greeks and all that. It was just a fact. Nobody could ever consider the world. You know, if, if you live with reincarnation, you're a Hindu. You're certainly in the modest do, non-dual world. Everything is related to everything else. The idea of dualism starts with Egyptians and eventually inherited by Plato. Uh, it's a Western idea, basically. You, these never cared about dualism to begin with. It wasn't wasn't a big thing. They had dualities, but not dualism. But but if if monism is the original point of view, for Zoroaster, it was a given that the world is monism. Then he exemplified. According to the Gotha, Zoroaster isolated himself with his best friend, Vishtaspa, for 23 years in a tent. And after 23 years, he walked out and declared the world's first imperial religion. A religion for an elite to build an infrastructure, to run an empire. And he declared that you can believe anything you like in my empire, I don't care. But the elite have to share a certain belief. And that belief they're going to share is very, very simple. It's boiled down to the Ahura and the Master. And we personified. So as to being the priest, Vishtasma being the king. That then goes all the way through. So when, when the Exodus is rewritten, you got the Moses and the Arab separation. I think the Moses and the Arab separation is an exact replica of that. You split. The, there's not one guy. There's not one tyrant. The God is in himself split meaning the leadership is split. And I think this is required in the modest worldview. In a modest worldview, non-dual, as you often say, is required to make the separation on the leadership level. And that's exactly why the world is one, but cannot be understood as one. The world must be understood as difference, starting with the leadership itself. And I think it's, it's just an evolutionary thing. If you had a tyrant running a tribe, you would die because you die with his stupidity. The problem for tyrants is that nobody reports to the tyrant when the bad news are out. Clearly something leaked out of a laboratory in Wuhan, China. Nobody dared to tell Xi Jinping until after seven months later, and the whole disaster, millions of people were dead. That's a perfect example of the destructiveness of tyranny, the stupidity of it. And I think this is essential to religion. 
And this is the complexity of monism. It was probably easier to sell it as dualism, good and evil to people because we tell dualism to children. For children, nothing else makes sense. It's Disney, it's good and evil. The problem now we reached a point in history where religion can no longer teach good and evil to grown-ups any longer because the world is now so complex and we understand it's also modest. And now when it stands at modest, we have to go back to monism itself. And there were two different alternatives when it comes to monism. You either believe everything is a process that repeats itself and comes back to the same point at all time, which is what happens if the constructive and the destructive are flattened out. That's paganism. Or you believe that you can take side with the constructive mindset. You can build shit, including skyscrapers eventually, or a civilization. You can try to improve on the world and things can happen that are so radical that they change history forever, hopefully to the better and not blowing ourselves up. But believing that you can go for the constructive mindset, I think is fundamental to Zoroastrianism and Judaism. These two religions went for the event but they went for the event and kept the process. The temptation that happened in Islam and Christianity was to go for the event only and skip the process. And that's when you get linear time. Here's the beginning. Here's a fall. Up from the fall, we rise. Somebody comes along and saves us, and then we go to heaven. And I think, I think, I think we need to go back to a process and include process and event into the same worldview, which is fiendishly difficult. But I think that's the proper modest worldview. I think it's process and event are the dualities I try to unite here. Mm -hmm. Process and event, yeah, yeah. I'm but wondering Plato, if this is the Platonic forms are out the door. There never was any perfect world. There never will be any. And perfection is boring, like hell. But what, 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 perfection is nothing but death. <laughs> If something is perfect, it cannot it cannot change because then it becomes imperfect. Okay, done. I know Plato was better than that, but the Platonic forms are basics to Christianity and Islam, and they're problematic. They 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 they, they were the mistake. Whereas I think process and event is the proper duality where we're going to dialogue with the Chinese and the Japanese and the Indians today as well, because they weren't the ones who discovered the event. Their problem in Eastern culture is that event was a fantastic Persian Hebrew innovation. Things can change to change. But what separates Orastis and Judaism here is that they knew the process was at the bottom of it. Like it almost like process was the feminine and event was the masculine attempt towards the feminine. That's that's the idea we're working with. So we have that's about five minutes, on. maybe until the an hour and a half mark here. So I'd like to hear some like concluding remarks, maybe from Zevi before I open it up to, to Q&A, if that's okay with you guys. Yes, I'm not sure how much QA I'm going to be able to stay for. I apologize. The, the, the hour is somewhat late here. Um, but, you know, the, the patriarch, one of the patriarchs of Israel, Jacob, uh, who's known as Israel after he struggles with the anonymous man, the angel, later identified with the persona of Esau. When he's dying on his deathbed, he calls his children around him. And he inquires about them and he chastises them and he blesses them. It's a very, it's a very real conversation they have, a dying man to his children who are going on to build an, a nation, uh, in, in, in an immortal, eternal family. And, and, he's, and he's not sure where they stand with each other, amongst each other, against each other. And they tell him, they say, Shema Israel, listen, Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord, the same, the same God that you have been raised on is our God too, and that God is one. This the, the notion that 
that God is somehow fundamentally split uh, between good and evil, between between the, the the God and the demiurge, between the Ahura and the Mazda. I think I think there's a deep rejection of that in Judaism. Where where no no wait 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 Ahura Mazda totally different from the other two categories you just mentioned. There's no good and evil at all. Ahura is being, right? What but, exists? Mazda is just mind. But to split being and mind would be to make the same fault that that Descartes makes. Right, we have to see Ahura Mazda as one. We have to see Hashem and Elohim as one. Yeah, we have both see... both one and split. And I and I and I think right, both one and split. Right? Yeah, yeah, both <laughs> one and split. Yeah, that's I, my point. And I think so. Then so then we're in agreement. I think that there's a there's a performative, um, you know, there's a performative division of power as Alexander has been speaking to, which is very important. I think of, I think of a book which I which I very much enjoyed as a teenager from from Kurt Vonnegut, the American author, uh, Cat's Cradle. And he writes, he writes about, uh, about this island where there's this um, very prosper, once prosperous nation. And, uh, and they have this very, very saintly Christ-like figure who's, who's a fugitive um, from this government who's despotic and authoritarian and trying to, and, and, and the stories reveal at the end that they really were two close friends. They came onto the island together and they really, had to, in order to have thriving religion, it had to be a form of tyranny. And in order to have a thriving government, it had to be there to suppress that, to have an enemy. And, and this notion that, that uh, we can, we can move into the dance a little, we can move beyond beyond the, the, the sort of the, the absolute dualisms. And I'm just, I'm just concerned sometimes that when we, when we too strongly attach ourselves to, 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 to unif to, to, to monistic Greek notions of oneness, perhaps, um, as Alexander put it, we can, we can lose the bigger picture. We can lose the sight that, that really Ahura and Mazda are one and split. That really Hashem and Elkim are one and split. And that and that we 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 cannot compute this. We cannot one and zero this. And um and I don't know if if uh, if Alexander and I are gonna are gonna come to some sort of you know symbiotic reconciliation of the conversation. But but it's been a great pleasure to to engage in this uh, very fruitful and very very illustrative and very pleasant. Um, conversation and disagreement throughout. I love your brother. And I'll tell you one story here, which brings in the Buddhist aspect finally here at the end. In Zoroastrianism, we have chosen to be Mazda Yasna. We could equally choose to be Ahura Yasna. So, okay, I was in just in Taiwan and went to a fantastic Buddhist center with my friend Joachim and we sat there, meditated the whole day. It's just stunningly beautiful. And Joachim looked over to me. He's also converting Zoroastrianism this year, but he was almost choosing Buddhism, and he knew he could choose either one. And he says, so this is the Hurayasta, isn't it? What? We're sitting and meditating in front of a beautiful rock. Yeah. And then we go to Yasdiran, and we go into the fire temple and meditate in front of a fire. This is illustration. There is not a recorded conflict between Zoroastrianism and Buddhism for over 2,500 years. Because as a Zoroastrian, I completely respect that Andrew went Buddhist because he's Ahura Yasna. He worships being. He goes into the Hura mode and he has chosen that as his religion. I have chosen <laughs> the challenge of going into the master mode. And the master mode is not recommended Zoroastrianism, but it is Zoroastrianism in itself. And the term, this is the name of Zoroastrianism among Zoroastrians, Mazda Yasna. Mazda Yasna literally means the love of wisdom. The word Mazda Yasna is about 1,300 years older than the Greek term philosophia. So now you know where the Greeks got the term from. So in Zoroastrianism, there is no difference between philosophy and religion at all. Hmm. But it's a philosophical conviction to devote yourself 
towards the master yasna, but you can equally devote yourself towards the hura yasna. That's why we have such great conversations. Barayana is a mixture of the two, clearly. Zen is also a mixture of the two. Bodhidharma founded Zen Buddhism, came from Afghanistan. So you have along the Silk Road, which if we if I ever get a chance to talk to you again, Zeve, I would love to dig into the Silk Road religions, of which Judaism is one of them, and, and, and look at what trade routes did to spirituality and thinking compared to the later attempts in history with Confucius and Islamic Christianity to create centralized system with simplified fairy tales and storytelling that probably now are cracking. Because I think where we're moving historically now, with mysticism is certainly included, is religion and spirituality we move back to look at what happened along the trade routes where people were in constant conversation, traded ideas. And along the Silk Road, Religion only differed in the sense that language differed from one oasis town to the next one. There was a slight, slight, slight variety of what was taught of the Kostag, you know, the original monasteries you would go to to clean your mind from bad deals you did in the bazaar before you went on to the next oasis town. And this, I think, is the origin of the religions we're talking about here, our three three beautiful faiths we're talking about. And I just want to address that here, my, my, my speech is say that, yeah, yeah you, you can choose to be a Horayasta or a Mastayasta to begin with in Zoroastrianism, because both the split within God and the unity of it lies in your brother choosing differently from you. Mm, that's also, a nice, sorry, you had... Okay. And, and, and what it creates is a religion that doesn't have a center. It doesn't have a Rome. It doesn't have, it doesn't have Mecca. It doesn't have, it doesn't have that one place you pray towards unity and there's a kind of idea of God as the tyrant. Rather, God in itself is split, meaning the community can be split. And that's a thriving, living community. And the community is where the oneness lies. The church, the synagogue, the ummah, the sangha, the anjuman is where the oneness lies. That's the oneness. So, Zavi, do you, how much time do you have uh, here, uh, uh, by the way, just so I, I know? Do you have to get maybe, Yeah, maybe maybe like 10 minutes. I'm, 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 10 minutes. I'm on like three hours sleep, and I have a I have a, a launch event for an enterprise, which I'm starting tomorrow. Oh dear. I have to... okay. okay, just so I know, like perhaps I could get one question from from, from people, you know, for, for yeah, you. Let's, before, let's, let's, before try, you... Let's, let's try to do that, yeah. You take off. There's somebody named MR that wrote me personally that said they wanted to talk. Who's MR? Is he here anymore? Maybe he's not here anymore. Hmm. Um, does anybody want to jump in uh, with, with with a question? Uh, I think that they got great comments in? more than questions. There's all kinds of comments here. Yeah. yeah, and it's hard to sort of parse out what is a question. And One of them is that Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, both have this that the religions that, that went for the minority eventually, and maybe that also helped them take the time to study carefully. And be that was Mayran. Do you want do you want to jump in? Mehran uh, or no, Mehran is it's just too long. It's just it's just got long, long, long tirades here. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, I we're think we're fine. I think I'm think fine. Zabi, I'm I'm terrific. I can jump in. I can just okay. one okay. question. I mean, uh, um, uh, especially uh, uh, I forgot your name, Zevi, uh, Seekers of Unity. I would like to have your take on the future of Rock of the Dome because it is not a place for. Muslim prayer, and I have uh, uh, took part of some Jewish debate on um, new takes on Allah, and and uh, some kind of um, uh, you know co coming to some kind of you know common community with the Muslim Muslim world, and it is it is very interesting and positive. And now my my question is um, your vision. Alexander talks about the phallic vision and, and 
you know, sharing the vision is the most important. And, uh, you know, coming to a common vision on the rock of the dome would be some place to, to start with. That's my, that's, my, that's my question. Is that relevant for you? To begin with yeah thank you of course thank you Marianne. thank you for thank you for that question yeah the um the dome of the rock the rock of the dome the the evan hashasia the foundation stone of, of this world in in jewish um terminology is very central to to me and my thinking and my being and it's a part of the deep mythos uh, which still pervades judaism and, and i was raised on as a child the vision to 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 put it um in in a some sort of iconography and some sort of imagery here the the, the rock the rock uh, on on the on the mountain there um from the jewish perspective can be thought of as the umbilical cord of the worlds and i'm, I'm using very mythological language here and, and and do with it as you please and that's the point of mythology that that in order for the the, for the fetus to be sustained in the womb of the mother there needs to be a point through which the nutrients come and that is the umbilical cord and and and, and that rock is the umbilical cord of planet Earth, according to the Jewish Midrash, according to you know millennia old Jewish texts, and, and this is, I mean, obviously deeply mythological here, but I think I think that what we can do with that is many things, and I think one thing that we can do with that is that we can re we can realize that we are that planet Earth is the fetus, and and the 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 sense this is the absurdity this is the absurdity of religious conflict to to wage war over the belly button of planet earth is to is is to is to 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 banish to to brandish knives and 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 ak-47s over the very the very umbilical cord which unites us as a fetus with the divine prana the divine energy which flows into reality and and what needs to be done is we need to we need to unite and 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 approach the navel of the world in prayer and in worship and in sanctity so that we can together we are the fetus. We are the collective fetus. Jew, Christian, we are the fetus. Just, just if I if I put it this way, no, one second. Is the rock of the let, let him the finish, please. The temple or not? Just, 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 that's my question because that that's the key. Is that Sorry. the third temple or not? Thank you. What what is the third temple? What is the third temple? The third temple. I mean, uh, it, it, it is is that the temple to to you know manifest the, the truth think, in that that's think, all. If we think that the third temple is some sort of collection of stones uh, where one people can be superior over another and we can have some sort of then then we're very, very lost. If the third temple is is a is a is a is a realization of the presence of the divine in through which the the spirit of of shared brotherhood and and spirituality and sustenance comes to the world, then certainly it is the third temple. And that begins within. And we all have a dome of the rock. We all have a belly button. We all we were all fetuses once. And when we can get in touch with where we were and where we are, then we can begin to and and anything anything that is going to distract us from the vision of us as a collective fetus suckling on the divine is 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 a, is a big mistake as far as I'm concerned. Okay, I want to hear from Ronald because because I know him and he always has good questions. Do you want to jump in, Ronald? Ah, uh, yes. Thank you. So my question is more about, um, it's sort of like a reflection about McLuhan and religion and the three things that you represent here. Since we are now in this global age, my question was more about, is there a change in the practice that you need to have in every of those religion base when you, the technology is changing? So for example, is for the Buddhist still as effective to do the mantra, to do the meditation in a world where 
you know, you have more technology of the electric man and all of that. So it's, uh, it's the question is sort of like the relationship between the change in technology and the practice and maybe the relationship of what could change. For example, if the reason why some religion are dying is because the faith or the experience that you could have intimately with it has been changed because of the new organization of senses. So just a, a quick connection between technology and the practice. Okay, my, my answer to that would be that it's a new paradigm, the digital age, and some religions will thrive, some religions will reform, and some religions will probably wither and die. It, it's just, these are belief systems, they can be ancient, um, they can make all kinds of claims, but at the end of the day, do they do they function for people? And do they, they do they create a sense of community? I think fundamentally that those those religions will survive. And that's why I'm here. I'm I'm having these discussions. What what would be credible in a more informed society in the way the digital world is more informed, also more chaotic, also more conflicts, also more globalized? But what 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 would it take to survive? And this, for example, where I think monism now rules so supremely, both in science and art. That it's we're going we're going back to a model that we actually had some three thousand years ago, and we're rediscovering it in new ways for the digital age. Yeah, Zevi's on the move there, so maybe I'll just I'll just put in my two cents here. Is I think I think that you can do the exact same thing that you did, you know, in the twelfth century uh, with with the different practices, but at the same time the the, uh, the traditions are changing. In in tantra, we have something called the terma, which means revelations that are arriving, you know, all the time. So in this one sense, there's a ver there is an orthodox thing, like you do the same practice. In another sense, there's there's also an ad adaptation and different teachings and practices for. Or uh, you know whatever paradigm that we're in, um, and uh, are you still with us, Zevi? Do you want to say good night? Do you have to go? I don't want to tax your time here. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm just heading to the bus. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's been it's been a pleasure and a delight. And uh, thank you, thank you, Andrew, for for bringing this conversation together and for hosting and for facilitating. And thank you, Alexander, for joining me in conversation and for uh, for butting hearts and heads together. It's been delightful. And for everyone who joined us to learn and to listen and to seek and to question, um, thank you. Thanks so much, Zevi. It's always an enormous uh, pleasure. Thank you very much. Pleasure is mine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. So Paris, Stockholm, Jerusalem, we're leaving for tonight and hope to see you guys soon again. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks so much, everybody. Big love. Big love. Big love.